The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 315 for Monday, February 14th, 2011. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you help write the agenda you send in your questions to us you send in your tips we try to provide answers we provide comments and uh and all in all we have a a fun little time here talking about all things mac and apple and all that good stuff here in not quite as cold as it has been durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton and here in fairfield connecticut John F. Braun. It's a heat wave, Dave. I know. It's just uh, it's well, it's to 56 warm six degrees. It's to warm our hearts for Valentine's Day, John. Oh, that's right. That's right. If you have a Valentine. Will you be my Valentine, John? Mm, well, are, are you I think you're taken. <laughs> not for the next hour, I'm not. I'm here. But I, but, I'm taken yeah. here for the next it, it, hour. You're all you're all mine. That's right. And well, I have <laughs> you have to share me with our listeners. <laughs> but I have a new love in my life, Dave. Oh, go. Yeah, take it. Go. <laughs> well, no. So, so I got my, uh, uh, so uh, you know how you, you love, you know, bringing me, you know, kicking and screaming into the present or the future. To the 19th yeah, so, century. So, yeah. So I basically got my, uh, last week got my uh, Verizon iPhone 4. Cool. It's very nice. I almost missed it though. I think I told you this. Yes. You know, I, ha- I had an appointment at 1045 in the UPS truck because uh, the tracking info was, was uh, it, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm impressed that Verizon handled the load as well as they did. Uh, I don't think they had the train wreck that AT&T had when, uh, when they rolled it out. Uh, no, everything went smoothly, plugged it in, activated it. It disabled my old phone, my old Crazer. Uh, brought over some apps. Uh, everything was was very very smooth through iTunes. I, I, I was very impressed how uh, how easy it was, and uh, the thing was just started working. So cool. So I'm uh, you know so now uh, I I can you know at some point help address some of these uh, iPhone questions which we uh, occasionally will get involving mail or or something else. But uh, but yeah, so it's a it's a happy member of of my computing family now. Yay. All right. It's a phone. It's a phone, too. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Every now and then we use it as a phone. I, um, All right. But what I, do we got? I ordered a, a new phone, John, believe it or not. Uh, well, you already have an iPhone, don't you? You have an AT&T iPhone. I right? do. I have an AT&T iPhone. I ordered a droid phone, believe it or not. A droid phone? Yeah. Adam Christensen, who, of course, does the uh, the great MacCast podcast and also uh, is our uh, developer here, web developer here at TMO. Uh, he mentioned the other day that he saw i think something by jason o'grady about a deal you could get uh the lg optimus 5 or optimus v phone uh is an android phone if you get it from virgin america or virgin wireless virgin america is the airline uh if you get it from virgin wireless here in the u.s it's a it's a um contract free phone for 150 bucks and the beauty uh, therein is that the contracts uh, and there's there's various levels that you can do. But for twenty five bucks for a 30 day period, uh, you get, I think, 300 minutes or something. But you get unlimited data. Now, the data is on the Sprint, you know, Nextel network. So you got to make sure you have coverage there. But uh, but unlimited data for twenty five bucks. That's a that's a cheap price to pay uh, for traveling and that sort of thing. It's better than uh, than even Virgin's price on the MiFi. And the cool part oh. is there is a way, because this runs Android, of making this phone 
turn itself into essentially a MiFi. It'll it's a wireless hotspot, if you will. So uh, so for twenty five bucks, I, I figured I got to try it out. Adam has one. He he started playing with it. I uh, I ordered mine today. I don't know if it'll be here. Uh, you know, we're going we're traveling with the family next week. So uh, so perhaps I'll have it for that. Perhaps I won't. But so but you can oh, get nice. it at, at Radio Shack and, and other places. So I'll, I'll report on it once I hear about it. But it's month to month. Correct. Correct. Oh, okay. So you can go because uh, I think in my case I could have ordered the hotspot feature, but I I don't believe I can turn that on and off. I think it's it's an extra twenty bucks a month for the the term of the contract and and just well, for kick no, when I ordered. Well, it depends on Verizon. I think Verizon would let you change your data package every oh. month, but you'd lose your unlimited eventually if you keep messing around with it, right? Because they're going to do away with the option of going to an unlimited plan. Right. Because right now, I I uh, according to what it says, I have unlimited three G data on this right. phone right okay oh well, that's so i'll keep i'll keep you posted on that i'll let, I'll let you know how that works but that's the uh yeah the, the yeah uh, we'll put a link in the show notes of, of the course. other thing i noticed when it, when i tried just attempted to order this phone as a as a month-to-month contract uh the 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 price of the phone swelled to about 650 dollars. right right that's right yeah contract <laughs> free yeah exactly so. All right, but enough about phones. There, there are other podcasts that talk about this. That's right, uh, but it's it's a good tool for a Mac user on the go, right? A wireless hotspot is great because you can connect your Mac to the internet anywhere that uh, that your hotspot has service. Sure, so that's sure. that's kind of a cool thing, and I'll, I'll probably use it with my Mac more than I would almost any other device I have, right? Because my phone already has service. Um, I guess my my Wi-Fi only iPad isn't yet another great uh, great accessory for that. So, all right. Um, you know, I want to tell you about our first sponsor, which is uh, someone that longtime listeners to this show are well aware of, and that is Barebones Software. And I want to talk about Yojimbo, not just Yojimbo for the Mac, but Yojimbo for the iPad as well. Yojimbo is Barebones' answer to, I have all these files, what do I do with them question, right? Uh, when when Yojimbo first came out, and I tell this story every now and then, uh, I got the press release at noon by 2 p.m. that day. I was totally sold. And here's the thing. It wasn't until 1.30 that I took a second look at it. Right. So I, I saw the press release. And I thought, what am I going to use this for? And OK, great. You know, press release. Great. Fine. File it away. Uh, I'll check it out some other time. And then I saw something. I guess I had loaded the Web page. And as I was closing through tabs in Safari or whatever, I saw this thing that said, take all these text files that you have and load them in here. And prior to that, I was someone who was using another bare bones product called BB edit to store, you know, just to manage all these text files of data that I constantly keep, you know, the agenda for the show, uh, little tech tips, you know, things I have going on. And I used to just have them in a folder of text files. So I pulled them all into Yojimbo and I've been there ever since. Of course, you know, the cool part about Yojimbo is it's not just text files that you can put in here. You can put in images you can put in pdfs you can put in audio files uh movies uh, you know all that stuff and then you can categorize it by uh you know however you want to categorize it so what you wind up with is this fantastic one-stop shop resource of all the little bits of information that you want to save in your life and you can put passwords out here again you know web archives uh, and, and, you know, I've got things organized by I've got a Mac Geek Gab folder where I throw all the questions. I've got a TMO folder where I throw uh, anything related to TMO. I've got, you know, my Backbeat Media folder, all, all that stuff and even a personal folder. And yeah, I can store my receipts in here. I can PDF them right to it using a little, uh, you know, print to PDF action that's right there when you uh, when you choose print. 
and you can store all, all this stuff in your Jumbo. It syncs with mobile me. Uh, you can sync it to any other Macs that, uh, that you have that you run mobile me with. You can sync your, your Jimbo library. So the stuff's always at work or at home with you, wherever you are. You can sync with Dropbox. There is a kind of a semi unsupported way of doing that. And then, uh, and then it also now syncs with Yojimbo for the iPad. Right now, the iPad version is read-only, meaning you do all your editing and adding to it on your Mac, but you can have it all on your iPad, and it will sync wirelessly, so uh, so you don't even have to, to jack in with USB. Yojimbo uh, is available, of course, uh, for the Mac. There's a free trial, 30 days. After that, it is $38.99. And the iPad version, of course, no trial because the app store doesn't facilitate that at all. Uh, it is nine ninety nine. So, uh, so you can check that out at barebones.com. And with that, we move on to an anonymous caller with a good question. Hi, John. Hi, Dave. Hi, Pilot Pete. And hi, Michael. Hey, um, I'm having a problem backing up to my external 320 gigabyte Western digital drive. I have an internal 320 Hitachi drive that Apple kindly put in. And then I have about 380 gigs to back up to my external 320. I do not move a lot of documents around, so there aren't much creating new and deleting old ones to get the time machine backup full of items that no longer exist. Um, right now, well, I decided to format my drive because... I, well, yeah, okay, so I formatted my drive, and then after I did that, I went to tell it to back up again, and it was backing up the hour hour before, fine. Once I told it to back up again, it said that it required 361 gigs, even though I only have 200, 280 gigs uh, to back up. And then when I say... <clears throat> When I go into the Time Machine uh, Preferences, I click on Options, and it says 202 gigs estimated backup, which will fit on my 320 backup drive, but for some reason, it doesn't want to back up to it. Um, I don't know why it would want another extra 60 gigs, and I called Apple, and they said, oh, it needs wiggle room. That's what that 60 gigs is for. 60 gigs for wiggle room? I don't think so, Apple. All right, thanks. This is where, we, where you cut me off. Cut off you are, sir. All right, John, go ahead. Uh, I know the answer to this question, Dave. Good. Well, first, I'm going to read you a little something. All right. Not a story. I'm going to read you a little something from the console on my MacBook Pro. Okay. Ready? Yes. Here we go. All right, backup D, which is the process uh, that does uh, the time machine process. Check this out. No pre-backup thinning needed. 2.5 gigabytes requested. 772 available. Once it was done, copied. 701 megabytes. Okay, you notice a little discrepancy there? Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, 701 versus uh, 2200 or something like that. Yes. Um, the bottom line, and I don't know why this is, Dave, is Time Machine's estimation algorithm or Backup D's estimation algorithm is stupid. I wonder why that is. Well, I, I don't. I don't know if I'd say stupid, but it, it, it's 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 inaccurate. Wolf, it, it's yes. very so. So what what 
he was told is absolutely correct. Now, I don't know, at least in this case, I mean, yeah, Dave, I mean, it's like three times the size of what was needed. I mean, the, the, you know, there's wiggle room and then there's, there's slop or they're, 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 I mean, that's too, uh, so based on what I just read you, uh, what he was told is correct. I don't know why time machine is so inaccurate. So, so the thing is you're going to have to, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's no way around it. It, as far as I know, it's going to refuse to do that backup because it, it, it's looking at that estimate, even though it doesn't match reality. Yeah. And I, I've seen this before. I've seen it always way overestimate the amount of space that it needs. And, and, and I, I don't know why. Huh? That's really, that is bizarre. I wonder, huh? I wonder why it does that. I don't know if anybody I, knows, I, I'd love to know, but I, I read you what I saw in the console and that that's what it thinks it needs. Right, right. And then after the fact, it reports what it actually did. I don't, I don't know why you can't figure well, that out. Well, okay, with. so the only thing I can think of is, you know, Time Machine sits on top of something called F, and we won't get too geeky here because it's not going to be, there's no solution other than, yeah, man, you need more space. I mean, that that's that that's what it comes down to. I think I think the recommendation is at least double the space on your time machine volume as there is uh, used on your hard drive. And, and part of the reason for that, of course, is, is this, you know, miscalculation or misestimation issue issue. But the other part of it is you want room to, to store your incrementals out there. That that's what time machine is built for. You may not want to use it that way, but that's how it's built. So, so that double the amount of space you wish to back up thing, or at least when you start is, uh, is right. But, you know, Time Machine uses something called FS Events, right, which goes out, um, which kind of monitors your drive. It, Time Machine registers itself with FS Events, as, as I understand it. And uh, then it asks it at a, some period of time later, hey, uh, what changed since the last time I told you to start monitoring things? And and that may be where it gets its estimation from. But then when it goes through and scours, it might say, oh, well. You know, these files are all in logs. We don't back those up. These are in the trash or whatever. We don't back that up. You know, it might it might when it goes through and and skips all of the things that either you've told it to skip or that it knows to skip on its own caches and and things like that, that it comes up with. Oh, there's only 700 megs worth of stuff. You know, Um, seems like a lot that there would be that, you know, whatever, a gig, a gig and a half worth of uh worth of, of cruft not to back up in, in whatever period of time you've defined John, but, but maybe, maybe there was, you know, that would be one explanation. I don't know the answer. Time to move on to Tyrone, John. Indeed. Okay. Tyrone wrote, uh, let's see. Uh, This is a, uh, an interesting question. He says, Oh, okay. Guys, the activity window, uh, is a great tool to use for capturing files as they are loaded in Safari. But how do you clear it out? As time goes by, it gets harder and harder to find the file that's downloading because you have to scroll through hundreds of entries. Okay. Uh, let's explain what Tyrone's talking about here. Uh, and then that'll be part of our answer. If you open up Safari and go to the window menu and choose activity, what you will see is you'll see uh, a breakdown for each web page that you have open. So if you've got multiple windows open or multiple tabs open, you're going to see one in one entry in the list for each of these. And it's a hierarchical entry, meaning uh, you're going to see a big long list for each one of these. And that list shows you all the different assets that are required to that your browser has been told by the web page to download, to build that site. 
So when you go to visit a web page, uh, rarely is it only downloading just the HTML code for that web page in one swift download. Most often that HTML will then tell it, Hey, and go get these 25 images and go get this JavaScript and go get this, uh, you know, that this other resource and maybe load this iframe here and all of this stuff. So by the end, there could be, you know, 20, 30, 40 entries out there. And that's not abnormal at all. The cool part is you can see what each of these things are just by looking out there in Safari's uh, activities list. And as Tyrone alluded to, if there's a file being downloaded, uh, say a music file for something like the Pandora service or right. I think a YouTube file you said, John, right. That you can do this with, which usually appears as a dot F L V file. Okay. So, you know, all of these are out there. And if you want that F L V file, or you want that MP3 file, that's buried in this web page, you can just pull it right out there. So, so that's a cool thing. And I think that's what Tyrone's talking about. Now his question about clearing this out. It's the, it, the list is dynamic. It only has entries for each web page you have open. So as you close windows or tabs, this list will necessarily then get shorter. As you add windows or tabs, of course, the list gets longer. Now, it is a hierarchical list. And in standard Apple fashion, you can twist the little uh, triangle icon that should be familiar on the left hand side of this to close each one up. But by default, they are all open. And based on what I was Figuring out, John, there is no way to tell it to, you know, there's no hold down option and it'll close them all at once. Like you can get in in uh, in iTunes, say, with the podcast list or something like that, which is a, a handy little tip that you can not, do that. Yeah, not that I can see. It shows you everything until that page is uh, is closed. Right. Um, now, some of the other interesting things you can do, Dave, now say you want to learn something about, as you pointed out, JavaScript. Well, if you see a .js file and you double click on it, it's going to show you the JavaScript. I think you can also see it if you... No, you can't. I, I, I think if you look at the source, you know, say view source, which will show you the HTML, sometimes yeah. it'll reference yes. JavaScript and CSS cascading style sheet files, but it right. won't show you what's in them. So this is kind of a sneaky way. Yep. To, uh, to download in the background. Now, the other thing I noticed, Dave, is sometimes a page won't load properly. And typically, I think what you'll see is in the lower left-hand corner of the Safari window, it'll say error loading page. And I think it'll say something to the effect of double click to view the errors. And I think what that does is that opens up the uh, activity window. And normally what you're going to see on the right-hand side of the activity window, you're going to see uh, almost always the size of whatever it is that it downloaded. Well, if it can't download something or has a problem with something, you'll see some sort of error right in the right-hand column. So so it's also a good tool to debug problems loading web pages, which which again you typically will see reported in the lower left-hand corner of Safari. Cool. You know, missing an image or, or yep. something like that. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right, moving on to Michael. Michael writes I have a problem with my screensaver either not starting or not staying on. I only use the stock Apple screensaver, so no problems with third-party screensavers. After a restart, everything works as normal for a while. After some time, maybe a day or so, I'll come home and notice that the screen is on just burning the desktop in. I'll then start the screensaver manually, but something will wake it shortly thereafter. Then I'm manually starting it until I eventually restart. That's the problem in a nutshell. Uh, 
some facts that may or may not help. I have a 24-inch iMac running 10.6, always up to date. Uh, it was updated from 10.5, and uh, the screensaver is set to 5 minutes. The screen off is set to 30 minutes. He turned off respond to infrared settings, so the TV remote isn't waking it up. And the problem happens on both a main user profile and a mostly clean user profile. He's tried it with and without his Bluetooth mouse. No difference. And nothing has appeared in the console logs. OK, so that's good troubleshooting because you've you've helped narrow this down uh, somewhat, which, of course, John, that makes our jobs easier because we can't just go for the simple solution and then uh, you know move on to the next question. Right. We, we're going to have to work a little bit on this one. But that's that's oh, a good man. thing. Mm. All right. So. um I, I'll, I'll, I'm still chatting here, so I'll, I'll talk. Well, I'll, I'll go first. Talk. <laughs> right. Uh, I've seen this on my iMac at home uh, occasionally, too. It's not happening. It hasn't been happening lately, but but I have seen it in the past. And when it was happening for me, it was because I had left the DVD player app open. And apparently the DVD player app, sort of by nature of what it does, disables the screensaver somehow when it's running. And this is probably a good thing, because if you started it up and started a DVD, well, that screensaver would, by default, kick in a whole lot sooner than your DVD would end. And that would be very frustrating because then you'd have to get your uh, your butt up off the couch. And as Americans, we don't uh, you know, when we sit down to watch our TV, we want to stay watching our TV. Uh, so they, so it's turned that off. Uh, by quitting DVD player, my problem went away. So. My I'm wondering if Michael is either running DVD player or something else like that. Uh, certainly if DVD player to, can can do this, then any app can do it. Um, so there might be some app running that's just disabled the screensaver. And so the timer is not even active. Uh, my advice would be to start troubleshooting it by quitting all your apps before you leave, but leaving the machine on and see if it goes to sleep or goes to screensaver and then sleep. And uh, and if that works, then try experimenting by, you know, disabling different apps and figuring figuring it out. Um, you've already kind of headed down the keyboard or mouse path, but that can certainly cause it too. I had a uh, a mouse. In fact, this machine here in the studio, I've got one of these razor uh, mice on it here. And uh, it it's a very sensitive mouse. And anytime I'm playing my drums, it wakes up my Mac. So uh you know, because I imagine just because the desk shakes just enough to cause whatever trigger has to happen to 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 light up. And so that, you know, that could be it, too. Or you might have pets that are messing with you, man, while you're gone. So cats, especially. Exactly. So so that those are my thoughts. I know, John, you had some ideas, too. Well, here's my thought is that there's an article that I found, Dave. So it it doesn't say why your screensaver may not work, but the title of the article. So it's H.T. 1776 Mac OS 10, why your Mac might not sleep or stay in sleep mode. And I, and I think a lot of the tips in this article, it's fairly current. It was updated October 1st, 2010 could suggest avenues. You may want to explore to try to solve this. And, and it's funny, Dave, that you mentioned playing a movie because you know, one of the specific things it mentions here as preventing the machine from going to sleep is yep. watching a DVD movie. Yep. And I'm not going to read the entire article, but it gives several high-level tips as to where you can start looking or what pieces of your system may be causing this. I mean, and well, I'll read part of it here. So they do mention keyboard, mouse, and other input devices. 
uh, open applications, expansion cards. Some cards are, though, yeah, that's that's not going to apply in this case. Or other hard drives or optical media. Um, and it gives a, a list here of things you can try. So, again, we're going to link to the article. There's a lot of things to try. It could, it could take a while to identify the you know, the specific cause of this. Sometimes I've seen the console will indicate the reason that it cannot sleep or run something. But I, I think he said he looked in there and didn't see anything that, that really made any sense. So, hmm. so that's what I suggest. I, I would suggest that it's pretty lengthy and I think it's pretty comprehensive. So it may take a while, but, uh, but I think if you go through this, you'll, you'll find it. I hope. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. It's it, that can be a frustrating thing when I, and I've had problems on that on, for whatever reason on that Mac uh, more often than I have on any others. And, uh, and, and yeah, it, it, it can be an arduous process to, to troubleshoot that. All right, John, I want to tell you and our listeners about our second sponsor for the, today's show, which is CoinGo software. And today we're talking about a piece of software they write called, or they've, they, they, a piece of their software called Mac pilot. Now, Mac Pilot's one of those, it's a geek utility for sure, but it's really easy to use and, uh, and has a great interface too. the idea behind Mac. Well, there's multiple ideas behind Mac Pilot. So it, first of all, it has the ability to do maintenance tasks, cleaning caches, uh, deleting unused preference files, running your cron strips, slimming down your universal binaries, uh, making folders visible or invisible. Uh, all, you know, that, that type of maintenance stuff that's available here. Tweaks are also available here and they say they've got over a thousand different tweaks that you can do, not just to Mac OS 10, but to other Macs as well. And some of these tweaks are things like running your screensaver as your desktop background, which could be kind of cool, uh, modifying advanced details about the personal, about the, the file server, setting your login window picture, changing the default screenshot file format, setting new fonts for the menu bar, for applications, for title bars, etc. Uh, it's also, like I said, it'll manage your login items. It'll let you do disk repairs. Uh, it will let you manage your startup, which can be pretty cool. You can, you can set it, you know, to normal startup or you can, uh, go into debug mode. You can force it into single user mode from this. You can even control things like the amount of Ram that the system is going to see, uh, if you want to test something and you want to say, well, what's, what would this, what would this machine run like if it had two gigs of Ram? Well, you plug that in and restart and off it goes. You can set how many cores you want your OS to, uh, to be able to see really, really cool tweaks. And again, it's a very Mac friendly user interface and, uh, and, and it, it's fun stuff. It is of course available as a 15 day free trial at coingosw.com. This is Mac pilot uh, at coingosw.com. It's 15 day free trial. After that, it's only nine, uh, it's 1995, 20 bucks. And, uh, and you have all these features right there at your fingertips. So cool stuff from those folks at Coingo software. And we are happy to have them on board. It's uh, it's easy talking about the geeky stuff that we all love. So uh, great to have them as well. All right. Uh, John, we got two very, very different and yet very related questions uh, about a Mac that's simply freezing up. So from from both Bill and Andy, I think I'm going to read Bill's question and then I'll, we'll play Andy's or a little bit of Andy's anyway to kind of get the gist and to kick off this discussion maybe. And then uh, and then we'll discuss. How's that sound, John? Fantastic. All right. So Bill writes. 
I've been experiencing more frequent slowdowns and crashes over a period of months, possibly related to a UPS battery failure uh, with, and I'm going to dismiss that right out of the gate. I don't think it's that, um, but we'll, we'll read through everything here with normal OS 10 behavior of only restarting with software updates and going months, once a year without any crashes, the windows behavior of sometimes multiple crashes a day oh, starts to become very frustrating. Apps will freeze, sometimes recovering after long periods, 20 plus minutes, and other times they simply stay frozen. Sometimes I'd have slowdowns for no apparent reason, still with plenty of free memory and little network or hard drive activity. Most of the time, the console logs did not provide any useful information. Many of these crashes were when the computer was fairly idle, such as waking from sleep, switching users, or even trying to shut down a restart. Force quit won't always work. Even terminal kill and shutdown commands failed. When a USB hub started disappearing and my turbo mouse switched left and right behavior button behavior, I decided to wipe the drive clean and start over. After cloning the hard drive, I installed a fresh copy of Snow Leopard from the DVD, hoping to save some time. I migrated users, but none of the other options. Some of my problems, the USB hub, uh, appear to be resolved, but others remain. The turbo mouse, the slowdowns, and then these crashes and freeze-ups, including the first time I've seen the beach ball and spinning dial at the same time. Other than possibly hardware, it would seem that some preferences are causing problems. Any advice on a better way to start over is appreciated. I really don't relish digging out all my serial numbers. Wasn't that bad when software all came on discs, but finding all the ones I bought electronically will be painful. App Store is starting to sound attractive in that regard. Okay. All right. So that's Bill's issue. And now, Andy. Hey, guys. It's Andy from the University of New Hampshire. Um and I am uh, having a really strange problem with my Mac. It's a pre-unibody 2008 uh, MacBook Pro 15-inch um, Snow Leopard. And what's happening is some of the time things are okay and things run at normal speed the way I'm used to. And... Then, you know, I'm sort of humming along and everything's okay. And then all of a sudden, the machine will either just freeze and stop accepting input altogether. Although the mouse still moves, it's just nothing activates. Um, keyboard or mouse. Um, and sometimes for like a couple of minutes. Um, or it will um, beach ball sometimes for several minutes. And then it'll go right back to working at full speed again. Sometimes the, the freezes are short, sometimes they're longer, um, and there appears to be no rhyme or reason to it other than that I've noticed that it tends to happen when I switch applications, but not only when I switch applications. Um, so my first thought was that this was a paging issue of some sort, uh, running out of RAM and swap files and the hard drive being really slow for some reason. But then there are times that it seems to run at a perfectly respectable speed and be totally fine. Um, although I, I'm wondering if benchmarking the drive would be worthwhile just to make sure that it's working, uh, but I couldn't find the link to the thing you guys had talked about recently uh, to do that. Uh, so if you can mention that again, that would be cool. But also, 
I've got, um, you know, it does it even when I'm only running one or two apps and I've got half of my four gigs of RAM free, it'll still do it. Um, And not just when I'm opening files, you know, or say, or writing files or things like that. It can be, you know, even like clicking on something that would cause an open dialogue to pop up or a save dialogue to pop up and it'll just, you know, just do that freeze. All right. That's uh, I think that that's a good description of, of the two problems, which very seem very, very similar, even though they came from two unrelated places. Uh, John, you want to take uh, you want to take this one out of the gate for us? I will try. Okay. All right. So, so here's the first place. So first, uh, I'm concerned about eventually Bill crystallized what he was talking about here, but but I just want to touch on one thing is that the term crash makes me nervous because at least to me, crash means something very specific. And I don't think what he's experiencing, I, I would necessarily call a crash. And I'll tell you why I say this, Dave, because if you look in either the console, so the console has a section under files, it's one of the major headings, and then slash library slash logs. Within there is actually something called crash reporter, and these are crash logs. Right. So, well, I think I think Bill was pretty clear. I mean, it, he used the term crash, but but what he's describing is exactly what Andy's describing, right? It's those it's those slowdowns or or long long pauses that uh, that we want to that we want to kind of help him figure out here. Right. So I just want to mention is that if you do want to look for information now, there, there may be something there. I doubt it in slash library slash logs, which is where a lot of logs when you either get now, you know, you know, actually there is something called hang reporter. And, and I think he's a, he, what he's experiencing is more of a hang. So yeah. you may want to look in there. So actually, I just noticed this here. Huh. There's a few different there's a few different directories in slash library slash logs. There's crash reporter. Diagnostic reports, hang reporter. So maybe look in hang reporter, see if there's anything there that maybe give you. Sometimes these things are hard to read, but look in hang reporter. There's also panic reporter. Now that's when you get a kernel panic. I think that's typically where things are put. If that's right. The system can do that. That's right. But I would almost. Uh, I'm pretty positive where Bill's problems are starting, and I think you lean toward this too, Dave. And and also based on the hardware that he described, um, there's something on some bus that is tormenting the system and it's getting it very upset. And and we've talked about this in the past, but a lot of times when hardware, especially a hard drive, when a hard drive needs to do something, it's going to generate what's called an interrupt. And that typically, and a lot of pieces of hardware, because when hardware needs to do something, the software kind of takes the back seat because it needs to finish something, whether it's moving data back and forth or whatever, whatever it's doing. And because he's mentioning that he has a few different devices hooked up, Dave, um, I'm going to suspect it may not. And and he said that he probably had a problem with USB devices. So I'm leaning towards now he said he has USB. I think he says here that he also has an eSATA card. That may be a problem. He says he has a Firewire bus. Yep. So he's he's got a good collection of hardware hooked up to different buses here. And good troubleshooting procedure, um, and, and I don't think you're going to see any explicit message anywhere in the console saying, hey, your Firewire bus is, is freaking out, or your eSATA card is freaking out. You may. You but, might. But right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might. It, depend, it depends on, on the driver and, and what the OS considers a, a problem. 
But, and yeah, he, so he also has a Firewire hub. Okay. So w- one thing I would try is, you know, it may, it may make your system not quite as usable as it should be, but you may want to systematically, maybe at a high level, so pull the Firewire hub, see if you still get this behavior. Maybe pull that eSATA card. Or at yep. least pull the drive from it, but it could be the card as well, or or the driver for it. Um, and then he's also got a USB hub, so he, he's uh, again he's got a a, a, collect, a pretty diverse collection of hardware buses here. Any one of which, if if they start to malfunction, or the device on the bus, uh, could be causing what what he's seeing. When I've seen this before, it's almost always, but not always, been the hard drive. Um, you know, as as the electronics on a hard drive start to fail or or I guess this could happen if you have uh, if you've got bad sectors and lots of them on the drive uh, that can do this, too. It, it just like you said, it generates that interrupt, which essentially says to the system, hang on, I, I, I'm finishing what you asked me to do. And uh, the system says, yeah, OK, well, we can't do anything until that's finished anyway. So it just kind of sits and hangs. It, it's you know, that that hard drive can can be it now. It could be the drive itself. Uh, it could be, like you said, the bus or, or something like that. Uh, I would back up the drive before benchmarking it. But benchmarking the drive would give you an idea if that's the place to look. Now, again, it could be the drive or, the, or it could be the bus. But um, and if it's the bus, when we when we say the bus, we mean in, in Mac speak, that means the electronics on the motherboard that link uh, the system to that 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 drive. So if if the bus is bad. Now, certainly in Andy's case, it means a motherboard replacement. In Bill's case, if it's the eSATA bus, well, then he can replace the card and then everything gets better. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's there's definitely a hardware issue here. It could be USB. That's that's the other one I've seen, John, for this for all the same reasons. Right. The either a device on the bus or the, or the bus itself. But uh, but that, I would look at the hard drive first and back it up before you do anything. Uh, but the hard over USB, what, uh, what benchmarking program was that, that we mentioned recently, John, I think it was, I think it was you that talked about for, it for hard drive. Yes. Uh, the one that I like is, is the one in drive genius. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I of think course. I have another one. Let, let me dig on my portable here. Okay. So it's actually something that comes from a, a group that makes video cards, but it has a hard drive. Right. Benchmark. But, right. Uh, right. Let me dig that up. But yeah, Drive Genius is good because it does the, 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 the major tests, but it does also different block sizes. And I think it actually has a test that will do a thorough block scan, I think, as we call it. Yep. Where it'll, it'll try to read and write. Or, or it'll try to verify. It'll try to talk to every block on the hard drive. So if you do have a, a hard drive that's slowly failing, the, this uh, in all likelihood is going to bring that problem. Uh, they've also introduced something new, which I haven't actually looked at yet, but I think I should call Drive Pulse, which sounds to be a, a suite of programs that run in the background and do maintenance tasks and, and will warn you quicker than something like Smart, which that's another thing. You check the Smart status, though sometimes Smart isn't too smart. And that it may not tell you the drive's about to fail until after it's failed. Okay. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing. If you don't have something, I, I use something. I mean, you can either look in System Profiler, Dave, or uh, I have a little little thing that hangs out in the menu bar called Smart Reporter, which uh, now that only applies to drives that are on the SATA bus. It won't it won't tell you anything uh, about USB or FireWire drives. Right, right. And, and from what I've heard, the uh, Smart, if Smart tells you that a drive is failing, it's almost always right. 
but it doesn't necessarily catch every drive that's failing. Smart relies on the electronics inside the drive to report back up the chain that, yes, we're noticing, you know, what we consider to be a problem. Uh, there, there are there are many reports of people that have drives that are, you know, failing miserably from a hardware level and smart status reporting. Hey, OK. Hey, no problems. So um so don't trust trust smart if it tells you you have a problem. But if you think you have a problem and smart says you don't uh, don't trust smart in that instance, trust your gut. Anything else on this one, John, or should we share a couple of tips that we got from uh, from well, one from Phil and one from Jeff? Um, All right, I'll, I'll share I'll share Phil's tip while you uh, while you go ahead and. Yeah, I want to find this other disc uh, benchmark yeah. program. Yep. OK, so uh, in the past, we've talked about uh especially the level of, of MacBook pro that we have, which is the same one that it sounds like Andy has the 2008 pre unibody uh, MacBook pro. And these machines will uh, officially support four gigs of Ram, two gigs in each slot with two slots. Uh, but as John and I have reported, uh, they'll actually support six, four gigs in one slot and two in the other. Uh, Phil has an interesting comment uh, about, about a couple things we've been discussing. Oh, uh, wait a minute. I got to I got to pull Phil's volume back up because I pulled it back down before. So, Phil, we're going to try you again. Hey, John and Dave. Uh, Phil here. I just wanted to let you know about my experience with six gigs of memory in that same MacBook Pro that you guys have. Uh, Apple, I had to take my computer into the Apple store and they messed some stuff up and they decided to upgrade me to six gigabytes of memory, a four gig and a two gig. Uh, I was very surprised and happy about this, but, um, because of the question that you talked about in your last show, I decided to call in and let you know that when they put the four gig stick in, they did put it into, <clears throat> excuse me, dim slot number one, not zero which also could have just been the easiest way for them to do it, but yep. maybe there was some unofficial official Apple document that said for them to put it in slot number one. Anyway, here's where you cut me off. Awesome. Uh, very interesting that Apple would even have done this, of course, because in all their literature, four gigs is the max and it's two gigs per slot. But uh, but thanks for sending that in, Phil. That, that's good to know that uh, that at least when they do do it, they don't uh, they don't dig out the, the the lowest chip and put it in there. So that's good. John, in my case, too, when go I got. Ahead. Yeah. So I found it. But also I noticed this day when I had Apple care on my machine, which uh, I think we're all talking the same machine here, which is mm-hmm. the early 2008. Correct. Correct. MacBook Pro. Yes. When I was on the phone to the guy and he said, how much RAM do you have? And I said six gigs. He he didn't blink. He didn't say, oh, well, that's not an officially supported configuration. We may have to take that four out and put a two in there. Right, right. Right. So I, so I think, uh, you know, it's a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and that Apple knows, even though their documentation insists that four is the maximum, that you, you really can't do six. Right. I don't know what happened if you put two fours in there. It won't work. Mm. It okay. Won't, it won't see it. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so an attempt to get the dual. Ch- well, well, it's called AJA system test. Apparently there's a company that makes, uh, you know, we'll link to the page here, but apparently it's a company that makes video cards, but they happen to have a little system test that will profile your hard drive i guess what you do is you you give it a volume you give it a video frame size so what it does is it simulates oh. i guess you know if a, a certain drive can handle or how well it can handle 
uh, capturing video and it has a file size. It also has a little checkbox, uh, disable file system cache, which is kind of interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, cool. Yet, yet another tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, in the last show, we also talked about podcast snippets. Jeff kind of takes something that we talked about and, and encapsulates it for us about how to do this. Uh, so we'll let that run. And then we've got a couple of questions about, uh, well, actually, both related to Windows, but in very, very different ways. Hey, John and Dave, it's Jeff from Denver, Colorado. I was just listening to episode 313, and somebody called in asking about grabbing a snippet from a podcast to send on to a friend. What I have done when I've encountered this in the past is in iTunes, I'll right-click on that particular podcast and choose Reveal and Finder. And then if you have QuickTime 7 installed, you can open up the audio file inside of there. You can set in and an out point, and then under one of the drop-down menus, you can trim to selection, which get, gets rid of anything that is not part of what you've already selected. And then from there, you can do a simple save as, and that will uh, save it in the existing format, whether it's AAC or MP3, and it does not have to re-encode it. So the save is almost in instantaneous. Here's where you cut me off. Outstanding. Thanks, Jeff. And yeah, of course, the trick there is QuickTime 7 is uh, something you would have needed to already have on your machine, right? Or can you pull it off the Snow Leopard DVD? Have we decided that, John? I thought I found a page where you can actually still download it if you want. To. Oh, really? Oh, even better. All right. Well, if we find that, we'll certainly put it in the... Uh, in the show notes because that would be fantastic. Apple, Maybe you can QuickTime download download QuickTime Seven. Apparently now, you can still well, get that it if you want it. it, but you would have to have previously bought a pro license, or no? Would that will that work that way? Well, I'm pretty sure to get certain functionality, you have to you have to get the pro key. Okay. Okay. So, but no, it looks like it's, uh, it says here QuickTime Seven Six Nine for Leopard. Though you know, as yeah. I mentioned it, it. It works fine on. Uh, yeah, it's funny here. Even though it officially says uh, 1058 is the uh, you know the last OS it works with, I mean it works on my system. Yeah, we verify works here too. Call. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, two questions about running Windows software on your Mac and some caveats there. First one's from Brett. Brett writes, "I was looking to move most of my PC programs and games to my Mac Pro without getting VM software or without using Boot Camp." I came across Codeweaver's crossover impersonator and was wondering if this would let me do it. John, you want to take this one and we'll pass it back and forth a little? Yeah, and my answer to him was a definite maybe. That's right. <laughs> I was trying to be... <laughs> the, the thing is, it's the nature of what crossover does. So crossover, I believe, is a commercial implementation of something called wine, which, of course, Dave stands for wine is not an emulator which tells us really nothing <laughs> that's right <laughs> but but these guys are taking a different approach so versus bootcamp where you're essentially installing windows on a windows pc as far as it's concerned you you are a windows pc even though right you're Mac. right uh, they give you all the drivers and all that or vmware or parallels or, or another one uh, which i'll mention later what this is doing is something different in, in that, Dave, they're translating. So the benefit of this system is that you don't need to install Windows. With all these other solutions, you're basically creating a little Windows computer, and you have to have a license for Windows. And, and I'll, I'll point out that in addition to that, 
Uh, you're also running Windows in order to get this software to run in, in these other solutions. Mm-hmm. And that means you got to worry about virus protection. You got to worry mm-hmm. about, you know, mm-hmm. all that other, all the updates, the OS updates and all that. And I got to be honest, that can be a real pain if all you want is a little VM and its sole purpose is to say run, you know, Internet Explorer seven to test things or run Quicken to do your finances. Having to then also manage an entire Windows installation underneath that—it's a pain in the neck because it's just not that important. But uh, but 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 it is important. So so this is right. this is where the benefit to to what CodeWeavers uh, does with with crossover. Right. So and what what crossover is doing is. Rather than pretending to be a PC, what they're doing is they're translating calls made to what what is called the Win32 API. Win, of course, is Windows. 32 is 32-bit, though I guess it could be 64-bit. But, but anyway, so, so we'll call it the Win32 API. API is Application Programming Interface. What is this? Basically, an API is something that the maker of any operating system will offer you to get the job done. And there are different classes of calls to accomplish different tasks. So you may have an API for drawing a window on the screen. You may have an API for writing a file to the disk, from reading a file, from taking user input. So you get this standard set of building blocks that the maker of the operating system offers you and that you really should be using. And what Crossover does is translates the Windows API to an equivalent call on the Mac side. And I would say you should have, there should be equivalent functions in any modern operating system. Of course, you know, drawing windows or writing files or reading files, accepting user input. I'd say this pretty much a one-to-one correspondence. So the ability of something like this to get its job done counts on the developer following the Windows API. If they follow the Windows API closely and don't get too clever or do anything too off the beaten path or too custom, then you'll get great support. If they do something really strange or really proprietary or custom or don't follow the Windows 30, the Win32 API, then it's not going to work right. And the thing is, I can't, we can't answer the question of what level of support they offer, but CodeWeavers does. Right. And we're going to link to this page. And they actually have an exhaustive list of applications on the Windows side, and then they give it a little metal. It's kind of cute. So they have bronze level support, silver, silver level support, and gold level support. And I would think the higher the metal, the more support you get for that particular application. So, so what, what needs to be done here is to look at the applications that you plan on running and see if they have, if they're even supported or if they are, if the level of support is what you need. And if it is, then I would say that crossover is a good solution. Yep. And, and, and so if I can encapsulate what you said there, John, and you did a killer job actually explaining that um, when when someone's writing a program and they want to put a window on the screen, they have two choices. One is to use what, John, you were talking about there, which is the API and essentially tell the operating system, go make me a window with these dimensions and these properties and and then the operating system just builds it, right? So that's that's a very simple way for a developer to get a window up as compared to option number two, which is talking directly to the graphics hardware and drawing a window on the screen. Now, this bypasses, breaks all kinds of rules and all that stuff, but certainly is possible. If the developer uses option number one, 
then it has a much better chance of working with this translator that Code Weavers calls uh, calls crossover or uh, where it's, if they do option number two, well, it's going to be a, a toss up as to what's going to happen when you run it inside an environment like this. One thing that's pretty cool is when you go to that compatibility list, John, and this is fairly new for, you know, Code Weavers have been doing this for a long time. They're at version 10, which is what uh, Impersonator is. But uh, you can they have they have little packages pre-built to install a lot of different things and make your life a lot easier. And they call these cross ties. And you can go to the website and you search for your deal and you say, oh, yeah, I want that. And you click on install via cross tie if it's there, if they've if they've pre-built one and they've gone through and done this for the most popular apps that people use uh, with with crossover. And uh, and it just does it. I mean, if you have once you have crossover installed on your Mac, it actually you kind of click the link in the browser and it takes over from there and just installs and you're totally good to go. So it's it's definitely cool stuff. Um, and so, yeah. The, the question is, does your stuff work? And you got to just go and answer that. And there are some things that do and some things that absolutely do not. So, but it's right. good stuff. And, yeah. and as you mentioned, because you're not running windows and you're, you're more doing a, a, you know, translation from the windows API to the Mac API, uh, viruses, I don't think are going to be able to get through that because typically no. I, I do not believe that Microsoft offers a virus API. <laughs> well let's let's put it this way if they do my guess is that code weavers does not support translation through it no they typically viruses sneak around published apis and and, and right. try to pull tricks here and because code weavers doesn't really support that that kind of tomfoolery um a, a virus just wouldn't wouldn't know what to do right Right. It, it would have no path to get over to the Mac. Yeah, well, yeah. Viruses, you know, with this, you're running applications inside their own. I mean, they call them bottles and it's really a good term, right? You're, you're running the app, you know, in this enclosed environment and there is no windows running. So there is no ex there is no ability for an extraneous process, i.e. a virus to to be out there running. I mean, there's just no there's no facility for that in uh, in the way that this works. It's pretty cool. My feeling when people ask, you know, I want to get a Mac, but I need to run uh, Windows for X. My first answer is, is, you know, or my first question is, are you sure X is the only thing you need? And they say, yeah, 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 that's it. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't matter. It's mail and web and I don't care how I do it. And uh, and then my next my, the next thing I do is I say, well, let's look, let's look on uh, uh, and see if crossover will do this because it makes it so simple. And you just once you get it up and running, you just launch the app just like. Pretty much just like it's a Mac app. I mean, it, it, it's that seamless and then it just works. So, uh, yeah, it's a good way to go. Of course, the other way to go is one of the other ways, like you said, John, is boot camp, which involves installing Windows onto a part of your hard drive and then booting your Mac only into Windows. So there's no Mac OS running. And, and you said it right, John. At that point, your Mac is a Windows PC, but it's just an Apple branded one. Um, and that leads us. Are we done here with Code Weavers? Because that leads us perfectly into Ralph's question. Yes. Good. Yes. So Ralph writes, I have a Mac Pro with two SATA drives in a RAID 1 configuration with Snow Leopard. That's my main OS. And using SuperDuper, I back up regularly and rotate external backups. Good move. Uh, I have a third drive in the Mac Pro with a boot camp partition with Windows 7 64-bit installed, mostly for playing games. However, while SuperDuper and Carbon Copy Cloner are great utilities, they don't support backing up boot camp partitions. 
What is the Apple recommended way to back up these supported bootcamp partitions? Uh, I don't really want to have to reinstall everything on my Win 7 partition when, not if, the drive crashes. Now, I'm familiar with the command line and open source software, and I have no problem questing for the solution, whether it be a Linux boot disk, uh, doing a tar, rdiff, or other popular command line tool. But before I journey into acronym land, I figured most Mac users out there who are doing what I'm doing may not have the tech savvy to dip into the command line. So what are they doing to solve this problem? Are people backing up from inside windows? Are they using a hard drive cloner on the Mac side? I asked you three entertaining hosts, the vast resources of your audience to help guide me. All right, John. Well, it's just you and me. We don't have Pete here. So uh, so you go. I'm going to go. And I actually have not done this, Dave, but I've offered advice. Right. So, so both to Ralph and to another buddy of mine, Kenny, hi Kenny, who um, who had the same problem. He's like, I, you know, I want to do this and I don't want to start from scratch. I want to bring my stuff over. How do you do that? The problem is, Dave, is that the Mac OS, you know, it understands some types of partitions. Right. Sadly, Windows partitions are not normally, though, though I'll get to that in a moment, not normally one of that. So I implemented the Google Foo and there happens to be a utility. Now, it looks rather dated, Dave, but it's something called WinClone. Yeah. Oh, I used to use that all the time on the Windows side. Yeah. And and it's exactly what was asked for. This is a utility that runs on the Mac that happens to understand how to copy a Windows partition. And I think that's about it. I mean, the, the feedback I got from both Kenny and uh, and I think we got both from uh, from who's uh, who, Ralph, who's, who's here, Ralph. Yeah. Uh, I think they both indicated that th- it did work as advertised. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. WinClone is is uh, is still a, a perfect solution for this particular uh, particular issue. Now, there's another solution that I think may work, Dave. Yeah. And as we mentioned, when you, when you go into this utility, you know, of course, this utility does have the uh, the ability to copy, I, I believe, you know, using the backup and restore functionality to copy partitions. Yes. But when you look at the normal, you know, uh, <clears throat> partition types, I think it's HFS or, you know, Mac OS extended and nothing shows up for any Windows types because, of course, you're not running a Windows machine. Right. But I have noticed what you can do, Dave. Um, they do have this package called NTFS3G. And this, yeah. I think, is built on something called Mac Fuse. But what I have noticed is that if you install this package, all of a sudden, this utility gets new partition types that it understands. Huh. So maybe you could take an image of that kind of, of an NTFS partition once you have that installed. Gosh, that would, well, you'd want to test that before you relied on it, Ralph. But, uh, but that would be an interesting, interesting exercise for sure. Yeah, I suspect, uh, yeah, the WinClone, I've, I've, read the reviews and got a lot of, you know, a lot of people said, yes, this is exactly what this does. And it does it great. So, yeah. so the other thing I mentioned is, is somewhat experimental, but if you got a hard drive, you want to destroy a partition that you don't care about and you just want to learn. So, or I may try it you know, I'll find an extra hard drive and, and there you go. see how it works out. Cool. All right. Well, I think that brings us to, uh, brings us to almost the end here, John, but we have a couple of things that we should, uh, we should talk about. And then the first is, yeah, well, we talk in the beginning about how this show is great because, well, it's great because you get to answer, you get us to answer your questions. But in order for us to answer your questions, you have to send them in to us. And John, how would people start if they thought, gosh, I have a question for John and Dave. How do I send it in? You know, I'd, I'd probably start with the email. I think most people are on the computer. Yeah. 
So if you want to email us, Dave, I, I think you you would probably want to send an email to feedback at macgeekab.com. That is feedback at macgeekab.com, John. Yeah, if, if you say so. <laughs> Uh, you can also call us uh, if perhaps you're in the car. Now, do so safely. But uh, the phone number is 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. Three, that uh, way you can speak your comments to us. Of course, you can also speak your comments on uh, your favorite portable device and uh, send us an, an audio file that way via email to our feedback at MacGeekGab.com address. Skype's Did you out say there. feedback? I said <laughs> feedback at MacGeekab.com. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. There's also Skype. And what, what's the Skype address? I, I couldn't even begin to guess what it would be. Well, if I had to guess, I'd say MacGeekab. And I'm guessing that that's going to work. Oh, you right. can also leave us iTunes comments. Uh, we can't reply to them, but uh, but they do help to promote the show. And promoting the show is good for all of us because uh, the more people that listen, uh, the more we're able to do here and all of that. And speaking of supporting the show, we also have a premium option. We do this show just about every week here, travel accepting. In addition to that, we do a, another episode twice a month. And uh, those are available via our, our premium subscription. It's 25 bucks for six months of access to that. In addition to, of course, the two premium episodes, you also get access to the entire archives. And most importantly, you get that warm, fuzzy, special feeling uh, that only comes when you support your two favorite geeks. So, And we really do appreciate it. All of you that are premium subscribers and are uh, going to become premium subscribers, we appreciate it. Absolutely. If you, if you want to get a peek at what we discuss on the premium show, you can always go to MacGeekab.com and check the show notes. The show notes are free. Mm-hmm. So you can see what we talk about in those right. and maybe learn a, a tip here or there. And, you know, how would you find out if the show notes were, or anything happening with the show, Dave? Well, you know, they got this this new thing called Twitter. That's right. That I just started using about. <laughs> you actually got me hooked. I think you're the first person I started following. Right. But it couldn't be easier. So if you want to learn about what's happening with MacGeekab, the Twitter handle is MacGeekab. You want to follow me, John F. Ron. You want to follow Dave, Dave Hamilton. You want to follow Pilot Pete, Pilot Pete, and Mac Observer. Mac Observer. Couldn't be simpler. Couldn't be. That's right. All right. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show to AAC and enhances that for you. And, of course, We Have Communicators is the best iPhone and iPad podcast uh, that I know of out there. So go ahead and give that a listen, too. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. And the podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine Yojimbo from Barebones Software, PDF Pen from Smile, and Notebook from Circus Ponies all through Backbeat Media. And, folks, that's it. We are out of here. We've got a premium show coming up, I believe, on Thursday, John. And then we're skipping a week because I'm traveling with the kids next week. So uh, we're off. Really? All right. Yeah. Heading to the West Coast, actually. California? Oh, Absolutely. No, no, no. Yeah. Oh. yeah. 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 Heading to San Francisco for a couple of days. Oh, nice. Yeah, it should be fun. Somewhere to go. Something to do. Family time together. So have fun and uh, don't get caught.